This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A bill that restricts discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in public school classrooms passed its final hearing in the Florida legislature and it's now headed to the governor's desk. The Parental Rights and Education Bill, which opponents call the Don't Say Gay Bill, prohibits classroom instruction on gender or sexual orientation quote, through grade three or in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. For more on the potential impact of this bill and what opponents plan to do next, we're joined by Will Larkins, a Winter Park High School junior. Larkins identifies as gay and non-binary. Will, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Beth Nelson, who is Will's mum. Beth, thank you as well. Thank you. Well, I want to start with you. You've travelled to Tallahassee a, a number of times to protest this bill, I understand. You've been part of local demonstrations against it at your school. How disappointing is it that the bill was not stopped? Um, you know, having been to Tallahassee three times, I, I testified in front of the Senate Appropriations Committee. I've been following everything really closely and keeping keeping close a close eye on not just House Bill 1557, but all of the anti-diversity bills currently being fast-tracked through the Florida legislature. I was extremely disappointed um, seeing it pass, but I was also not even a little bit surprised. We knew from the start that it was going to pass through the House and the Senate. There was a little bit of hope that possibly on Monday they would would pass through one of our amendments that were filed. Mm -hmm. But every single one was shot down. So I was expecting it, and I was preparing myself... But it still doesn't take away from from how unfortunate it is that that it actually became a reality and that it's here and that it's happening. Beth, what's it been like for you um, watching Will kind of take a stand against this and and sort of ruminating on what that means for him and and for you for you know for parents of of, of kids like Will? Actually, it's been very revealing in a lot of ways. I. Um, to see, like to to watch Will uh, take this on and be able to really articulate um, what this means not only to him personally but to his whole community, the whole LGBTQ community and children, um, really shows that there's an experience happening with LGBTQ kids that parents may not even be fully aware of, like what what's happening with their inner life. Um, as they navigate schools and public places where where people have biases and prejudices, so mm-hmm. um, I'm happy that he is able to articulate this on behalf of the LGBTQ community, and I think it's uh, very educational for parents who are raising raising kids. What about this notion of parental rights? Because that's in the language of the bill. You're a parent. How do you think your rights are affected one way or the other by this bill? If, you know, it, it still has to be signed by the governor. It's expected that the governor will sign it, so it will become law. So what does that mean for you? Well, for me personally, my children are a little older, and they have quite, quite a bit of awareness. So uh, I'm not as concerned for my specific children as I am for uh, for the the children who are much younger and and need to have... Uh, a supportive environment for them to feel good about who they are and who they're becoming and feel safe amongst their peers. Because we know it's it's a historical fact that for the last 50 years, these kinds of legislations have directly turned peers against peers. Mm-hmm. And that when these kids are not given 
clear reference points and just open education about these things that it turns kids against each other. And so that my concern for that is very, very high. And yeah, it's upsetting to think that any kids in any classroom would be treating each other badly because of a lack of education. Will, I wonder, thinking about the language in the bill, you know, it highlights kindergarten through grade three. What are your recollections of whether gender and sexual orientation were discussed in class when, when you were in elementary school? They were not discussed at all. I knew in kindergarten that I, like, was different. Um, It was very apparent to me based on, you know, my interests versus the interests of other boys in my class and, like, how I felt. I definitely... I went to a small school, so I felt like an outcast, and I, I wasn't exposed to the fact that there are communities of people like me that don't fall into boys do this, girls do this. And because of that, you know, that was that was really hard to navigate on my own as as a child. And even though the K through third line is one line of this bill, which causes damage in so many different arenas, I still disagree with that part. And a lot of people say, oh, well, I agree with this one part. No, it should be taught in K through third. Nobody is nobody's pushing for like sex education in kindergarten, like a lot of people are trying to say, like even Ron DeSantis' spokesperson was calling opponents of the bill groomers on Twitter. But that's simply not true. We learned about the trials and tribulations of enslaved people in America and of immigrants, and we learned about the women's suffrage movement in third grade. And granted, not in the detail that we learn about it in like high school or middle school, but we still learn the basics of it. Why don't we learn the basics of Stonewall? Why don't we learn the basics of the Violet Scare? Why don't we learn that there is a community out here, at least to show the kids who are in there who are either internally struggling or externally struggling, that they're not the only one. And even though they feel like they are, and they feel that they're alone, or we feel that we're alone, because I've been there, that's not true. Um... And this bill is just setting back the work of what activists have been trying to do by by trying to put queer education in schools, which is one of the most important things. Education is one of the most important things. If people knew that, oh, guys who are into, you know, more feminine things or people who don't really fall into either gender binary or women who feel masculine or people who are born in the wrong body, like, etc. you know, all of these different experiences. If people knew that that was just a possibility, that that was a thing from, from, like, growing up, like, if that was just known as a fact of life instead of having it be like, okay, this is, like, a talk, then I would have been bullied in fourth grade. If people knew that, oh, this was, like, a normal thing. If kids grew up with that knowledge just being like, okay, yeah, whatever, then kids wouldn't have made fun of me, you know what I mean? And I wouldn't have had to deal with all of that up to this day because hatred, bigotry, all of that stems from a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, a lack of empathy. And if it's taught to kids from a young age, then there wouldn't be that because you show signs of being queer or non-binary or trans from from birth, like Mm. from once you are conscience and once you start to um, express yourself you know like 
you know, but you don't know, and nobody else knows, and people just think you're weird. And that's why it's important that we learn about this. Um, Beth, what's it like for you listening to Will talk about this? I mean, it must be hard to hear him reflect on being bullied as a, as a kid. I'm, that's, that's terrible for any parent to, to have to listen to, right? No matter who their kid is and what experience they have. Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting to me because I I had my kids go to a school where I felt like there, there was a lot of diversity and they would be safe. But in some ways... Apparently, it was a non-conversation. Hmm. There was no conversation about it. And uh, amongst the staff and maybe, you know, a, a majority of the students, differences were not a problem. But I didn't really realize that not talking about it and being silently accepting like, hey, every, anything is OK, would actually also not be helpful. Hmm. That that actually there needs to be a conversation, some understanding, some idea that these are are all the 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 different possibilities that can exist, and they're all okay. That was an important conversation that that I missed uh, having with my kids, and I would have really appreciated had the educators who know so much more about childhood development and this kind of thing had they had that conversation, I would have been very grateful. Well, uh, what's the next steps for you then? What What do you think you're going to do? Are you going to keep protesting this? Uh, do you have a plan for what to do if and when the bill is signed into law? A lot of local student organizers have already been reaching out and we've already been discussing what we can do. Nobody really knows what the next step is. You know, we can protest all we want, but it it is into law and to get it get it out it would be a lawsuit which is not really something that us as high school students can necessarily tackle um so i think what we're going to do next is we're going to get our peers to vote we need everyone to vote these people who represent a minority in the state out of power and midterms are coming up this this summer and me and my friend Maddie Zornick, who actually organized the walkout at my school, um, were meeting with staff today to discuss setting up reg- voter registration booths at our lunches. And we're working with other student leaders in other OCPS schools to try to get that implemented there as well. That is the only thing we can do at this point is show these people, OK, so you're going to pass not just House Bill 1557, which is unpopular among the youth and unpopular among their constituents. So we're going to vote you out. It's, it is it is the next step so they don't keep doing this and they don't keep passing hateful legislation. And we can get a group of people in there. So next session, we can undo all of the, all of the damage that was done during this legislative session. Do you have support at your school among the general student population? Did this, uh, is there a support of staff there? You know, before the past couple weeks, it felt like it wasn't supportive. The minority of hateful people were very loud about their opinions. Being the president of the Queer Student Union, I got a lot of a lot of hate. You know, people are, are very mean. I've had a lot of situations where I've been put in danger from, you know, my peers. People have vandalized our posters um, and staff has kind of stood there and done nothing in a in a lot of situations, but 
now that we've had a walkout and now that people's eyes are on what's actually going on and they they really realize the true extent, you know, what, now that we've gotten our message, the education out there, now that we've educated the populace, I feel like the culture at my school has shifted. And, and it was probably a majority being supportive in the first place, but now you can see that it's a majority and it seems like a majority and it feels like a majority. Mm-hmm. Beth, uh, anything you want to add to, to the discussion at this point? I do want to say that what gives me hope is that what I see from Will and his peers, like the Gen Z people, is that there really is something. Uh, I, I feel like they have a power that my generation never really had coming in, coming of age. So I find that very, very hopeful. Uh, and I do find it, to follow up what you said, Will, uh, I find it alarming that uh, it seems like the Florida legislature is chipping away. Um, and sometimes some of what they're doing is chipping away in places where people aren't really looking. And I think a spotlight really needs to stay on exactly what they're doing and how each of these bills that they're passing, even if they seem minor, uh, how they come together to really uh, be making a big difference uh, in a negative way. We've been speaking with uh, Beth Nelson. Uh, she's the parent of Will Larkins, who's a Winter Park High School junior. We've been talking about the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which opponents have labelled the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is headed to the governor's desk. Will, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And Beth, thank you as well. Thank you. Up next, two years ago, everyday life ground to a halt as COVID-19 took hold. WMFE journalists open up their reporters' notebooks and talk about the impact of the pandemic. That's when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. COVID-19 was in the United States by the early months of 2020, but it wasn't until March 2020 that the wider impacts of the pandemic really began to be felt across the country. The pandemic also ushered in a new era of journalism and reporting as social distancing and other health measures began to take effect. Two years on, we turn now to members of WMFE's news team, and we're asking them to flip back through their reporters' notebooks from the last couple of years. Amy Green is WMFE's environmental reporter. Amy, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Brendan Byrne is WMFE space reporter and host of Are We There Yet? Brendan, thanks as well. Thanks for having me. And Allegra Montesano is our intersection intern and a journalism student at the University of Central Florida. Allegra, thank you as well. Thank you. Amy, I want to start with you. You're on the environmental beat and you're used to covering environmental crises, but what was it like pivoting to health reporting as the pandemic unfolded in those early months? Yeah, you know, obviously that was a stretch and, you know, it was an obvious stretch for our newsroom at WMFE, which is pretty small. We have seven or eight reporters and editors and hosts in our newsroom. And But the good thing was that we all work really well together. We had done this before. For example, back in 2016, when the mass shooting occurred at the Pulse nightclub, we all switched over to that news story and worked together on that and worked really well together on that. The thing that was different about this situation was that it obviously affected our personal lives in very significant ways. 
My daughter was in kindergarten at the time, and so I was working from home on a pretty significant news story, and we were all putting in long hours at the same time while I had no childcare, and I'm a single mother and stuff like that. And so that was challenging. And for me, uh, mid-March, the start of the pandemic collided with deadlines for a book that I was working on on the Everglades. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember (laughs) in the beginning of March taking vacation so I could wrap up some edits on my manuscript. And I can remember while I was working on my manuscript, I can remember having um, a news conference with Governor Ron DeSantis on in the background where he was announcing the first coronavirus case in Florida. And then later that week, he announced the second case in Florida And then the next week, I went back to work for a week, and that was the last week we were all together in the office. I can remember trying to file photos and artwork to my publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press, which needed that stuff in very specific formats. And I am a writer, and that's not my area of expertise. And so I can remember trying to send that artwork and get it sent up to Johns Hopkins University Press, while at the same time, my daughter was home from school. And we Mm -hmm. as a team were managing, you know, obviously a very challenging news story. Mm -hmm. Brendan, thinking on the last couple years, how do you think the pandemic changed the way you covered the space beat? So, you know, at at first, there really wasn't too much of a transition to do because covering space for Are We There Yet? While it's a show that we air locally, it has a national audience through its podcasting. So, you know, we've always had, you know, national guests where I couldn't interview them in person. So, you know, the show had always been kind of on this remote interviewing kind of thing. But I think one of the things that we did think about a lot in the months after let's say mid 2020 was we needed that kind of escape that Amy mentioned. Um, And so at first I felt kind of guilty doing these space stories because there was a much more pressing issue to, to tackle, right? We had to figure out, you know, get this information to our listeners. We're, we're working very long hours. It's a very important story, but it got to a point where we needed something to be excited about or something to take our attention away from what was happening. And, and it seemed that space was was a great way to do that, right? It's always been an inspirational uh, topic. And in in mid-2020, we had the launch of, of Bob and Doug, the, you know, the first human space launch in almost a decade right. in Florida. And I think that was a very welcome distraction for a lot of people, both here in Florida and, and around the country. So I think kind of finding things to be excited and optimistic and inspired by kind of changed my focus a bit and really highlight these these fun stories that really show you know the good thing about you know what human beings can do um, despite um, all of the terrible things that were happening throughout the pandemic um, so I think it, it kind of refocused me on on what's important about the space beat right it's it's this inspiration that connects us all and gives us something good to look forward to despite the dark that's happening here on this planet. I wonder, Brendan, how much of an impact you think the pandemic, though, has had on the way NASA operates or the commercial space industry itself? Yeah, that was a very uncertain time. And and I remember speaking with with some people about uh, submissions that they really didn't think were going to launch because of the pandemic. It was was very uncertain. Um, The launch of Bob and Doug um, demonstration mission one with, with SpaceX and NASA 
Um, that was a priority. That had to happen, and, and NASA worked very hard to make sure they could do that safely. Um, you know, astronauts are, are usually quarantined before going to space and are very good at mitigating germs. So it wasn't really a concern for Bob and Doug, but it was a concern for the team that would have to launch them and prepare them for space. Um, I remember talking to a scientist on NASA's Perseverance mission, which, if you recall, launched in 2020. And they weren't sure if it was even going to launch um, just because of, of what was happening <laughs> down here on Earth. So there was quite a bit of uncertainty. But these are some very important things that had to happen. If, if, if Perseverance did not launch when it launched, it would have to wait an additional two more years. If Bob and Doug did not launch when they launched in, in May of 2020, we would still be reliant on the Russians to get rides to the station, which we all know is probably not a, a good relationship to have. Uh, with the U.S. and Russia right now. So I think these things had to happen, and I think NASA realized how important they were. And and really, to take a, a remote workforce like that, or, or to take a workforce like that and go remote that are doing these very difficult tasks, like putting people in space, you know, I think it's just a tremendous effort that they put in to do that safely and successfully, both NASA and SpaceX. I do think, though, there was quite a bit of disappointment. I mean, as I mentioned, this was the first launch of humans in 10 years. And NASA had to go out there and say, guys, don't go out in public. Don't go watch this. Just watch it from home, which was very disappointing. You know, for years, NASA had been amping this up to say, this is going to be, you know, our return. We're Launch America. This is, you know, we are a significant uh, spacefaring nation once more. Um, and they couldn't have those celebrations. And and me as a reporter, I wasn't able to go and talk to the people that would be out there watching it. So I think that was that was one of the downsides of it was, was not being able to celebrate all of these inspirational things together and talk to the people that were that were celebrating them. Indeed. Allegra, you embarked on your journalism degree in the middle of the pandemic. What were you expecting from that first year as a journalism student and what was the reality like? So at the very beginning of that first semester, it was kind of like the way I was expecting. So we would take whatever we were learning in class in a textbook or basically lectures from our professors. And we knew that we would eventually apply them to the real world. We'd go out and we'd report or we would do whatever we had to do to create a story. And some of those basic tenets that they would give us would be be curious and ask good questions. Uh, I know Professor Brunson, he'd always said shoe leather. So you need to get on your feet, go out, find a story or find a source. And we would read that about that. We'd be like, yeah, I'm so excited. I can't wait to go do journalism. And it ended up being very different because, well, first and foremost, we do a lot of stories for the school and UCF had everything over Zoom. There was like nothing in person at the time and it doesn't make for fantastic um, like maybe photos or sound or there, there's a lot in between there that makes it very difficult um, to do. So it was a very different experience and we'd always hear stories from like guest lecturers over Zoom who'd be like, yeah, I went to a marathon and I interviewed someone who was running there and I ran with them and I was always like that sounds so exciting like I wonder when I'm gonna get to that point where I can go do that sort of journalism which I think is the the most uh, I guess basic really true type of journalism in my eyes right right so you'd envisaged having the mic and and being able to interview people face to face and I guess that first year must have been a bit disappointing. I wonder too, though, um, just reflecting on what Amy was talking about before, I mean, trying to sort of juggle the realities of daily life in the pandemic and then this very challenging job, 
I imagine it must be quite similar in a way, you know, being confronted with with uh, trying to figure out your studies because as a student you're you're thinking and you, you mentioned the online classes and things you're, you're you're trying to figure out all of that too, right? Like, how is this going to affect? What's happening at university? And by the way, I'm trying to learn how to be a journalist in the real world as well. Talk to us a little bit about that, trying to sort of balance those two things out. Definitely. I think it's also a lot of preference for everybody because I know some people, like, they learn better online and not in a classroom setting, whereas I think I've always been kind of okay either way. But it was definitely still difficult having everything. Some classes didn't even have Zoom. Some classes were just, like, read what I'm giving you on Canvas and then do an exam. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the in-person interaction really makes it, I guess, like the content more memorable. Um, a lot of people learn better that way. So I think the professors were also kind of confused on what to do as well. Who, you know, they didn't really know what to do with Zoom. Everyone was very confused. It was a group effort, I think, to really get classes together. So not only was I, I think... Not struggling, but um, just trying to figure out my other classes, which I do care about a lot as well. But I think I was really just so focused on my journalism classes that I was like, I'm supposed to go find a story tomorrow, and it's a Zoom event, and I don't really know how to navigate that. And it it was a lot of Mm -hmm. the students helping each other, too. Um, You know, get an interesting uh, screenshot over here, or like, ask them for courtesy photos. Amy, do you think the pandemic has permanently changed the way you report? And not just technology as well, like kind of thinking about how you approach a story. Has it, has it changed profoundly the way you work? Yeah, I mean, the obvious one is conducting interviews over Zoom a lot more frequently, you know, for better or worse. The obvious thing is we're getting out of the office less frequently than we used to. That has obvious downsides. But on the plus side, you're able to kind of fit in more during the day because you're not spending time driving around and things like that. You know, I mentioned my book deadline in March of 2020. It was released a year later in March of 2021. And I did all of those book events online, um, which was obviously disappointing. But on the plus side, I was able to reach more communities. You know, I didn't have to take off work for travel and everything. I had recently gone through surgery, and so I was able to hobble over to my computer and turn on Zoom and I was able to reach more readers that way. I did one book event with a bookstore in Sarasota, which is my hometown. And when it came time to take questions, my daughter's music teacher was on the call. So that was fun. And a woman who I worked with frequently when she covered the environment at the Miami station. And at the time she was up in Wisconsin and she was dialed in from Wisconsin. So that was great. Allegra, just kind of reflecting on the the first part of your journalism studies and and then kind of looking ahead to the future, do you think, do you sort of think, you know, what would it be like had the pandemic not come along? Like, would would I be a different journalist if we weren't dealing with this pandemic at the same time? I wonder how you think the pandemic is, what are the profound impacts of this going forward as you embark on your career? 
Uh, I think, if anything, it's made me a little more versatile because I, I was thinking originally, like, you can only get a story in person. You can only, like, that's the best way to do it. Like, if you really want to get a good, important story, you got to be there. And I think it definitely still is important, um, but it's doable. I think that it's doable in any way you can, whether it be over Zoom or running across the city, right? So um, I think... Uh, that's it's very doable. It made me a lot more versatile. Um, I don't know if I would be a different journalist. I think at the end of the day, like it will, it could have just boiled down to me being really excited about it and my passion for doing it. And I think that would have remained the same. I tried to not allow the pandemic to hinder my um, excitement about it. So maybe, maybe it's just me. It could have been other people too, but. Yeah, I mean, it's something that still excites me now, so I think I would have found a way to work around that anyway. And Brendan, do you think the pandemic has had a permanent impact on the way you report? You know, I I think most importantly is it reminded me of the immense responsibility that we have as journalists to provide clear and accurate information that at many times during the pandemic, I mean, were life and death decisions that our listeners would have to make, providing them this, you know, vitally important information. So it it reminded me of that immense responsibility that we have. And it was something that impacted everybody. This was a story that impacted every single person in, in our listening area, in our state, and in this country. And so, you know, it, it was, it served as, as a, a humbling reminder of that enormous responsibility that we all have in our newsroom. But it also served as a reminder that we also need to kind of look at the good that's happening, and that is a, a, a nice distraction. Um, so I think I have refocused, you know, covering space to look for, you know, those more human interest stories, the stories of inspiration that, that could have that that widespread impact on, on our listeners. So yeah, I think we are, we're a collaborative newsroom, we're creative, and this will not be the last time that we have to get creative and figure out new ways to tell stories. Uh, despite these immense challenges that are happening to us. Um, but I think all of us in the newsroom know how important we are to our community, and we know that there is an immense responsibility that we have to, to provide that information to our community, and we're going to keep doing it. Uh, you know, No matter what gets thrown our way, uh, we're going to be able to do it. Brendan Byrne is WMFE space reporter and host of Are We There Yet? Brendan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We've also been speaking with Amy Green, WMFE environmental reporter. Amy, thank you as well. Nice talking with you. And Allegra Montesano, our intersection intern and a journalism student at the University of Central Florida. Allegra, thank you so much as well. Thank you for having me. Still to come, we talk with two Gen Z Floridians about how the pandemic turned their worlds upside down and how they adapted. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 passed 900,000 last month, and epidemiologists say that's likely an undercount. Millions of people have been infected with COVID, many of them long haulers with lingering symptoms, but even for those who didn't get sick or didn't lose someone to COVID, it still has been hugely disruptive. Floridians finishing high school and heading to college in early 2020 had their worlds turned upside down by the pandemic. They missed out on milestone events like prom and graduation. Intersection intern Allegra Montesano talked with two Gen Z Floridians about how the last two years have gone. Maximilian Harmanolu, a Valencia College graduate who's part owner of Versus Games in Oviedo, 
and David Perez, a Florida State University student who lived in Orlando and was a Disney cast member last summer. Harmanolu began the conversation. When the pandemic hit, he'd just moved into his dream apartment at UCF's hub. Going into 2020, I was supposed to be wrapping up my degree, actually, at Valencia. Um, I should have graduated with that uh, come by 2020. I had a gap year from 2017 going into 2018. So I started Valencia in 2018. So 2020 was supposed to be my wrap-up year for Valencia, and I was supposed to go into UCF. I was supposed to do the Direct Connect program. And, you know, a lot of things were delayed with the classes being uh, moved to online. And I was going for business. And at the tail end of my degree at Valencia, I was getting hit with all the, you know, prerequisites for the bachelor's program or the business program uh, at UCF. So all of my really important classes, uh, like financial accounting, you know, managerial accounting, business calc, all of that was going to be moved to online because they didn't, nobody knew what was going on. And I wasn't comfortable with that. So I wanted to wait it out. And so instead of taking my four classes per semester that I was looking forward to, because again, supposed to finish up, I was only taking one or two classes per semester. So that, that is one thing that I had missed out planning wise, let alone for any, you know, building relationships as in, in terms of friendships and meeting people, because as said, I had just moved into hub in 2019 of August. So I had maybe five months of enjoying this, you know, beautiful place before then it go to a ghost town, which was extremely interesting. Definitely. And David, uh, where were you when the pandemic started and what were you doing? How old were you? When the pandemic was categorized as a pandemic in March of 2020, I was a senior in Miami, Florida. But ironically enough, I was in Washington, D.C. the day that it was categorized as a pandemic for a national broadcast competition called Student Television Network. I went there to represent my high school. The day before the competition was set to start, everything shut down. While I was in the Capitol, the I saw like the entire city just go mayhem. It was insane. And as a high school student, the first worry we had was, are we going to be able to get back home? Are flights going to be available? What's going to happen? What are the mask policies now moving onward? Everything was definitely questioned at that very moment. Thankfully, we got home safely. Um, we traveled, it was a group, I believe, of 24 of us. Luckily, none of us were, like, got, the, got COVID, and that was phenomenal. But then the long-term effects that it had, obviously, I just said it was my senior year. Um, because of COVID, my last months of my high school career were essentially stripped away from me, gone. And there's nothing we can do to ever get that back. I constantly think about the fact of one day when I have kids when my child comes up to me and was like, hey, dad, how was your prom night? Well, guess what? We didn't have prom. We didn't get graduation. There was no celebration to honor the pivotal moments of our childhood, essentially, where we transitioned from a kid to adulthood. It was hard. My mental health went steady declined. It hit me like a bus. And luckily, I was not as affected financially or health-wise, and I always, I'm grateful for that, but definitely socially, 
it made a big impact in my life. So it really does sound like the pandemic has had like a pretty heavy effect on you, uh, even just looking back on everything that you kind of had to miss, uh, even then, how are you doing now? Well, obviously the pandemic wasn't just a one year thing. We're two years in it right now. And luckily things have changed, but we're still in that pandemic title or that state of emergency declared by Washington. Graduating high school was difficult, but then I was basically sent off to college in a year that college wasn't even open. So the question started to arise of, am I going to move? Is it worth to get an apartment? If I get an apartment, would it just be a waste of money? Because obviously I'm not going to move to a new town to go to my college if there's going to be no reason if everything's going to be online. My dream school was out of state, but at the time being, like, I questioned myself. I was like, was, is it even worth it to pay so much in tuition when I'm just going to get glorified catatonic? This are definitely different aspects that I had to question. And it was a very dark period because what I grew up my entire life dreaming about, instead of living my dreams, I was living my worst nightmare. And Max, did you think that the pandemic was going to last long initially, or how long did you think it was going to last? So when the pandemic hit, I had already re-signed my lease for Hub. It's come by January-ish, December, January, with all these student housings is when they start hitting you with, hey, renew, renew, renew. And again, I was there for five months. And I was like, this place is beautiful. Everything's been great so far. Signed it, no problem. You know, yeah, sure, nine forty a month, but I was only five months into that. I was like, you know, whatever. I deserve it. I have the means. And so I signed for that. I thought I was prepared for like, at the very least, until the end of July, which was the lease term being over. I guess that's just mentally how I kind of, you know, was hoping for, you know, things would just work out. You know, maybe it'll be, it sounds reasonable. Come by March, March to July, that's four months-ish. Like, you know, maybe it'll only be like something quick, you know, hopefully. And then um, as things started to just progress, 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 and get, you know, more and more serious, um, and then, of course, realizing like, yeah, no, there's no way that this is going to be a brief four months. Come by July, I think that we were hearing that things might not get back to normal until 2022. They were saying mid 2022, way back in, in in the first six months of COVID, that that's what their projection was for life turning back to normal. And then that's when we were all like, whoa, two and a half years, like that's going to be no way they're trying to bait us or whatever. I was in the uppermost apartment. I had people telling me, man, like you probably have the best apartment uh, view and everything because I used to always be able to see everybody, everybody at the pool, having a good time, barbecuing, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of that went to emptiness. And then there I was looking at this gray pool area because the color scheme is gray with neon, you know, colors, et cetera. But without the people there, you know, all you really focused on was the gray uh, after so long. Come by April to May when I was starting to doubt. And I was like, oh, wait, this is probably not going to be four months. And then it solidified July where I was like, yeah, no, the projections of two-ish years, et cetera, et cetera. But leading up into that, you know, mental health went to a total decline. I also refused to go home. And my home, gratefully, is only three and a half hours away in Cooper City, Florida. So I didn't want to go down home 
because here I was paying $920 a month for this apartment. So I didn't want it to kind of be like a waste. So I lost motivation in general. I just stayed in my apartment for months and months on end, looking at that nothingness that was there. Eventually, you know, I started to meet people and meet, you know, friends because then in turn, what the pandemic brought was as college was shut down, as David said before, there was a lot of now, now, now kids, quote unquote, or young adults able to have freedom beyond any freedom that was had before. I wanted to start on, you know, my own clothing brand, Sunset Park, as well as I was in the talks of joining versus games. So it, it gave a lot of avenues, but it took a lot of avenues away at the same time, or at least changed direction. And how are you doing now in terms of mental health? You know, a lot of time went by and different things happened. Recently lost a friend. And um, that friend was um, somebody who, who, who I was with majority of the time in 2020. So, you know, it's interesting because everybody has their different um, things that they went through during that time and how the cards fell. Same thing with David. You know, I mean, things are interesting, um, you know. So, I mean, some of the foundation that I laid out in 2020 and 2021 during the uh, craziness um, is good in terms of versus games, doing great. You know, that was, you know, I had the opportunity to start laying that out. You know, I had the free time and I had, you know, the, the resources, you know, great in that aspect. As for the timing wise and wishing now that things are finally falling into place and wishing that I can be with the people who, you know, we all said was like, all right, we're going to get through it. Like, you know, can't wait till things get to normal, normal. Um, you know, also my father lives in New York and um, no flights. I went to only two of my grandfather's yearly anniversary passings because then COVID happened. So I haven't seen that part of my family in, in, in New York in years. So definitely like I lost, I lost a lot of communication with my father. Like him and I were on the phone last night. We're like, Hey man, I think we drifted apart. And I'm like, I know, like, I know, like, I'm sorry. So, you know, I was caught up in, you know, the 2020, 2021, you know, figuring out different avenues of your life and, you know, young adult figuring things out, you know, doing school, trying to start up, you know, Sunset Park versus et cetera, et cetera. So as of, as of right now though, you know, I'm trying to get through the best that I can. Um, I ponder all the time, um, which is helpful and not at the same time. But um, I think that things are going, going, going in the right direction because they have to. Thank you for sharing. Also, I'm really sorry to hear about your friend. I know it's really difficult. You know, we're in a pandemic, so when bad things happen, they just feel extra bad, right? David, how did your friends and people your age act when the pandemic kind of came about? Was there like a pause in lifestyle for everyone or were people still going out? So like I said earlier, the pandemic hit when I was in a national broadcast competition. When I came back home, um, our school took advantage of the situation and they were like, oh, we're going to get the kids who just, who just like traveled and we're going to quarantine you guys. And we're going to test the like two weeks. We're going to test like this online system with this certain group, with this certain population. And I was like, I was willing to do it. In fact, in my mind, I was low-key happy because I was like, yay, two weeks off school, sign me up. 
Well, the first week went by, and that Friday, um, our school announced that they were that we would not be returning to class. And I look back now, and I'm, I don't remember my last day of high school. My last day of high school was going to like last day before going to make this competition, and it was as in- insignificant as any other day. I don't remember it. Like it's it's sad I couldn't say goodbye to the halls that saw me grow up. It's sad that I couldn't give a thank you to the teachers that really helped define me and attributed to like the person I am right now. Um, but I think my story is very insignificant when you compare it to the real grand scheme of things. Like building off of Max just said, like how many people have lost their lives to this pandemic? Before we started today, I was on Instagram and asked was I was looking at a post that they said, I believe the number was around 900,000 plus people of Americans just in the country have died due to COVID. Six million plus worldwide. Luckily for me, I'm not one that has been affected with a loss like that. And I'm grateful for that. Not a day goes by behind it. I did test positive with COVID twice. Within the same year, actually, January 6, 2021, I tested positive, and then December 18, 2021, I tested positive again with Omicron. Luckily, as I said, no one in my family passed away, and I take that for granted. No one lost their jobs, and I recognize that that's not the normal. That's not the reality. That's not what people went through. We are fortunate enough that our biggest problems right now are talking about rent, talking about what's like what our future is whether we're going to take a class or not there are people who unfortunately have to return every single night home and eat dinner with, with to an empty chair and beyond grateful that that's i'm not part of that statistic but to answer your question to what you said how do people react i think there was definitely in miami um <laughs> The vibe in Miami, people went crazy. People took advantage of the situation. And because of that, Miami became very quickly one of the hot like cities with this variant, with COVID, with whatever, anything that's come out due to COVID, Miami has been hit the hardest. And it's just because of that mentality, people just continue to go party. At first, people didn't know the significance that this virus was going to have on society and essentially the world. And at first, it was frustrating as someone who believed in the virus and believed in the information that was being released. I got annoyed very easily. I was like, I never was able to wrap my head around how people couldn't believe in a virus that was killing so many. And I can definitely tell you that I was annoyed just for a lack of a better word, with the entire situation and how it started, essentially. A lot of young people are saying that they feel as though they've lost some of their youth to the pandemic. What do you think about this? Do you do you feel that same way? I definitely, I could see the reason behind such comment. I mean, when we started, I'm telling you, I was stripped away from such a pivotal transition point, and I think American culture from childhood to adulthood, graduation gone, prom gone, getting into college was a completely different animal than compared to other years, just because of this ongoing virus. Um, so I definitely can see and I can 
understand the mentality behind losing that youth. I think I was forced to grow up faster than compared to others because I was thrown in this world where there was no foundation. We were going to provide the foundation. I also believe that we shouldn't be looking at things so negatively because that's just going to continue or is going to cause a bad mental breakdown in the long run. Um, And I truly believe that in moment of darkness, we should seek to find the light, to guide our way out of it. And that's why I decided to move to Orlando during this period of time last summer and make the most out of my time. And hence, I never would have believed it, but I'm proud to say that I was a cast member this past summer. And it was definitely a, a good experience. And I think I made the most out of what was given at me especially with the pandemic and everything that was going on. Max, as well, do you think that maybe you lost some of your youth to the pandemic, as some people have been saying, or do you have any thoughts about that? My reaction to that is their perspective is valid. The perspective is valid. The point is valid. You know, the emo- everybody's emotions behind the pandemic is valid. It's then just how you move forward with it. You know, do you say it with compassion and understanding and, you know, um, it's kind of the same way when somebody passes away, it changes you. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you had going on. Somebody who passes away, you could say, like, that made somebody grow up early on, depending when it would happen to them. So at the same time, you know, you you hold it and you carry it, but you can also hold it and carry it in, you know, a better way of gratefulness, gratitude. You know, you learn something that young at the same time. So it's not always a negative, you know, we all lost something, you know, if it wasn't my young life in, in the twenties, you know, late teens, 19 to 20, 20, 21, et cetera. It was somebody's last time in the third decade, you know, they're losing their thirties going to, or losing their twenties and going to the thirties, losing their thirties, going to, you know, whatever. So, you know, every, everybody lost something, whether it's categorized as youth or just an important block of time. So that's my perspective on that. Just be grateful and just be aware you're here now. So make the most of it. And there's only so much that you can do, but you can move forward. You can. I've been speaking with David Perez and Maximilian Harmanolu. Thank you both so much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Our intern is Allegra Montesano. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection, and download the podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.